Please join with me in reading Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I have said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. Christianity, among many other things, is a religion of paradoxes. Christianity is a religion of paradoxes. It's not a religion of contradictions, but it's a religion of seeming contradictions. And, and these paradoxes, that they don't exist off on the sidelines of our doctrinal faith, but really at the very core. Our most crucial and precious doctrines are seemingly paradoxical. We say that God is one and three. When you figure that one out, come talk to me. We say that God sovereignly foreordains whatsoever comes to pass and that humans are each free moral agents who are fully responsible for their actions. And nowhere is this paradoxical nature of our faith clearer than in the celebration of Advent. What does Advent teach us? The message of Advent is that God became man. God remained God while at the same time becoming one of us. And even more so, God did not come as a champion or a king or a warrior, but God came as a servant. The topsy-turvy, upside-down, counterintuitive way of Jesus is what Advent illuminates. Advent says, uniquely among all world religions, that God comes down to us. We don't have to ascend to him. God has pursued us. We don't have to pursue him. God has been incarnated in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And further, God in Jesus served us. God in Jesus suffered. God in Jesus died and was buried. God came as a servant. The Son is a servant. He has come to save us by serving us. More than any other book in the entire Bible, Isaiah makes this paradox clear. That's why we're studying over these four weeks of Advent, four different songs of Isaiah. They're known as servant songs, four sections that prophesy what to Isaiah must have been a mysterious figure, the, the servants. Will began last week by taking us through Isaiah 42. 
Today we see the second song, what Tim just read in Isaiah 49. And and here the servant speaks to us in in the first person. He he talks to us about himself. But, But there's even more than that. Even the earliest interpreters of Isaiah, the ancient church fathers, saw this chapter as a sort of conversation between God the Father and God the Son. You might have picked up on that as it was being read. We, we get a glimpse in these verses behind the curtain of the Trinity to hear the plan of God to bring his people back to him. So as we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about how to read the prophetic literature When we encounter the literature of the prophets in the Old Testament, we have to keep in mind that there are multiple levels of fulfillment in these prophecies. Perhaps the story will help. When Marianne and I and our children lived in Tucson, uh, the northern section of Tucson is bordered by the Catalina Mountains. And so anytime you drive north through the desert of Tucson, you see these beautiful, majestic desert mountains on the horizon. And, and if you're far away on the southern part of the city, it looks like you're facing a single mountain range. But if you drive north, as you get nearer, what you realize is that there's actually a smaller crest of hills in front of the larger Catalina range behind them. Far away, it's easy to miss the first crest and to see them as one range, but as you get closer, you realize that they're really two ranges. That's an illustration that I hope will help you think about Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah is prophesying here about things and people and events that apply to the people of his day. Will talked about this last week briefly, namely how God was going to send Israel into exile, but later on he would release them and bring them back to their land. Those events that are in our past but were in their future are akin to that first smaller mountain range. But all the initial readers would have seen is is one range. As we get closer, we see that there's actually another level of fulfillment, a second, larger, more significant mountain range. These verses are also about not just the redemption of Israel, but but the redemption of the entire cosmos. The, The work of the servant is not just to bring Israel back, it's to bring each one of us back home to our Father who made us and who loves us. And so, as we study these verses for just a couple of moments together this morning, my hope for you and for me, is that we will more clearly this morning see who Jesus is and and see what Jesus has done for us in his advent. My hope is that we will trust him and love him and rejoice in him because he has served us and in his service has redeemed us. Two things I want to show you. The identity of the servant, first. The task of the servant, second. So let's look. Isaiah 49 the identity of the service. That's what verses 1 through 4, servant, excuse me, that's what verses 1 through 4 about. The servant we see here in verse 1 is, is speaking in the first person. Look at what he says. He ushers a command. Listen, he says. Listen, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples that are far away. So who is this person that is speaking? Who is this servant? What's his identity? That's been actually a pretty hotly disputed question among Bible interpreters. And if you just read this text, or if if you listen to Tim read it, it seems fairly obvious on a surface reading of the text. He's identified there in verse 3. Look there with me. He said to me, that's the Father, says, you are my servant, Israel. 
Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So apparently the servant is the nation of Israel. And that makes sense from an Old Testament perspective. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might know that God did in fact choose Israel to to represent him before the rest of the world, to be a nation of priests, as he calls them. God did choose Israel to praise him and to be a light to the nations. After all, when God first constituted Israel through the covenant he made with Israel's father, Abraham, he promised Abraham that all the peoples of the world would be blessed through his family. But if you know anything about the story of the Bible or about the rest of what Isaiah prophesies, you'll know that Israel did a miserable job of serving God. They failed spectacularly in their calling. In fact, that's why in Isaiah's original context, they had been banished into exile. Israel had worshipped other gods. Israel had cheated on God, her husband, repeatedly. And then Israel had ignored God's pleas for them to return to him. But but even in this text, we see strong hints that the servant Isaiah speaks about is not, at the end of the day, in fact, the nation of Israel. Look in verse 5 with me. There we read that this servant will bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. So if the servant is really Israel as a nation, how can Israel bring Israel back to God? It it starts to break down, doesn't it, as you study the passage? No, the, the servant is not finally Israel. The servant is an individual person. The servant is, we know now, Messiah. It is Jesus the Christ. And what Isaiah is saying here about the identity of this servant is that Jesus will come and Jesus will accomplish what Israel always failed to accomplish. Jesus will succeed where Israel repeatedly fell short. Jesus will substitute himself in the place of God's unholy and unrighteous people. And Jesus will live a holy, righteous life before God. That's what Jesus' whole life is about. It's about him doing what Israel and what you and I failed to do and him obeying God where Israel had disobeyed God. If you know Jesus' life, you'll know that when he first begins his ministry, remember he is sent out into the wilderness for, anybody remember how many days? Any of you kids know how many days was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days, very good, 40 days. And that is very intentionally a, sort of a redo of Israel's time in the wilderness. Remember Israel in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, they're in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And what is the nature of Israel's time in the wilderness? They're bitter. They're complaining. They're rebellious against God. Take us back to Egypt, God, is their repeated cry. But Jesus, the second Israel, the new Israel, the true Israel, is faithful He's obedient to God, even in the wilderness, even when he's starving to death, even when he's being tempted by the enemy, the devil himself. This Jesus is the servant, the real Israel. He stands in for God's people to be what they could not be and to do what they could never do. The servant is a person who will come and succeed where Israel failed and and where we fail. Isaiah tells us more about him. Look at the text again with me. 
And here again we see the paradoxical nature of Advent. First, this servant very clearly has authority. He commands the people to listen and to pay attention in verse 1. And then Isaiah goes on to describe how the servant has been set apart by God from the beginning. Look in verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb, the servant says. From the body of my mother, he named my name. We see this fulfilled in Luke chapter 1 in the Christmas story. When the angel appears to Mary and he says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great authority. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, authority. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And as of his kingdom there will be no end. The servant has authority. We also see in verse 2 that his words will have authority. Look at what he says. My mouth was made like a sharp sword. In his quiver, he hid me away. He made me like a polished arrow. The, the ministry of Jesus will consist of effective and cutting and, and sharp words. Again, if you've read through the story of the Gospels, just as one example, when Jesus finishes his most famous story or teaching, excuse me, the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, at the end of that sermon, when Jesus finished these sayings, Matthew writes, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as one who had authority. So this servant, this Jesus, will have authority, but Isaiah also describes him as one who has humility. Continue to look in the text with me. That's, first of all, evident in his title for himself. He is a servant. He's not here called a king, although that would have been an appropriate title for him. He's called a servant. He claims authority over the coastlands and the peoples, but he's called a servant by his father who will bring glory to his father in verse 3. And then there's verse 4. Here we read that the servant will feel, will feel frustration. He will feel loss. He will feel hurt as a result of his redeeming work. I have labored in vain. He says, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now that is an incredible verse. It's an incredible verse. This verse, do you get it? It's giving voice to what Jesus was going to experience as the incarnate son of God some 700 years before that actually happened. Isaiah prophesies and sees that Jesus comes as one who has authority, but, but Jesus, paradoxically, also suffers. He suffers humbly. This verse is about Jesus, as our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, in, in the days of his humiliation. Listen, Jesus experienced despondency in his ministry and in his life. Jesus had days where he saw no fruit even though he was doing his father's will. If you want a church growth strategy, don't follow the ministry of Jesus. Everybody bails on Jesus as he continues to teach God's word. Jesus had a moment where he realized that his own people, his cousins, his brothers, his sisters, they weren't going to receive him. And then he tells God, Jesus does, how he feels. He, he weeps over Jerusalem's faithlessness. He wonders at his disciples. Remember what he says as he comes into Jerusalem. Oh, you of little faith, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Jesus agonizes over his mission in Gethsemane. My soul is sorrowful, he says, even to death. And he prays to God, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The paradox of Advent is already seen here in Isaiah's song. In the identity of the servant, the servant will come as one who has, on the one hand, divine authority, and at the same time, on the other hand, as one who humbles himself, even to the point of death. Hebrews 5.8 puts it like this, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So, that's who the servant is. Why should you care? (laughs) What does that mean for my life now? 2,700 years after these words were written, this prophecy clearly tells us that Jesus is both the king who has authority and the servant who has humility. So what? Listen, what these verses mean and what I hope the Holy Spirit will imprint upon your hearts by faith is that, that no matter what you're going through, no matter where you're at right now, no matter how you're suffering, Jesus can help you. And Jesus wants to help you. Jesus can help you. And Jesus wants to help you. Listen to how the great Puritan John Owen put it in his book, The Glory of Christ. Owen writes this, when we go to someone for help, two questions arise. The first is, is the person whom we are going to for help willing to help us? And and secondly, is he able to help us? We need to know that Christ is both willing and able to help us and to meet all our needs. Listen, Jesus because he has authority and power, is in fact able to help you no matter what you're experiencing right now that's bad or hard. And Jesus, because he has humility and meekness, is also willing. In fact, he desperately wants you to ask him to help you. That's the unique beauty of the Christian story. We worship and believe in an all-powerful God who is high and lifted up, who has all authority, and to whom one day every knee shall bow. We worship and believe in a God who does whatever pleases him. He's able to help us. But, but, we also have a God who knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to suffer and to be hurt and to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be lied about and lied to. He knows what it's like to feel deeply frustrated, to feel deeply alone, to feel that God has left him, to feel the dark night of the soul. Jesus knows what that feels like. And so because of all of this, we can trust that he's willing to help. The identity of the servant, the identity of Jesus that Isaiah lays out here in his prophecy is that Jesus is never going to stop powerfully and invincibly loving us into renewal. Jesus is never going to stop powerfully, invincibly loving us into restoration. That's what his identity means for you now, no matter what's going on in your life. Isaiah also tells us about the task of the servant. That's verses 5 and 6 and 7. And and the task of the servant, I, I think, can be summed up in one word restoration. 
Restoration is his task. Look at verse 5. Here we see that the father has entrusted to the servant, to his son, one massive job. He tells him what it is. To bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. There you have it. Jesus came to bring people back to God. Jesus came to bring you back to God. Of course, in the original context, Isaiah is speaking to exiled Israelites. He's saying, exile is not the final word for you. God has not forgotten you, even though you've been wayward. You are still his. But of course, Jesus speaks to you through this verse right now. Jesus came to bring you back to God because you have been alienated from him. You have been cast away from him. Your relationship with him, which once was perfect through our first parents, has been ruptured through our rebellion against him. But Jesus has come to put an end to that rupturing. He's come to restore. That's what Advent is. That's why Jesus came. But then in verse 6, the servant's task, it's expanded even further. Did you catch it when it was read? Look with me again. We read here, God say to his son, I, I love this verse, it's too light a thing. It's not a big enough deal. It's not a big enough deal that you, Jesus, should be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, the first little mountain range is not enough. We need the bigger mountain range. So what does the father tell the son? He says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What a verse. God is not satisfied with just restoring Israel to full relationship with him, to the status of fully beloved children. No, 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 no. He doesn't get enough glory for that. He doesn't get enough fame for doing that. He wants more. It's too light a thing for God to only rescue and restore Israel. That doesn't show the world well enough who he really is and what he's really like. So on top of that, he's going to restore the entire world. He'll make Jesus a light to the nations. His salvation will go to the ends of the earth. It will go to places like China. Where a few hours before where we sit right now, millions of Chinese Christians worshipped in secret underground house churches, hiding from the powers of the state. It will go to places like Pakistan, where a revival and church planting movement is on the precipice of beginning to change that country. It will go to places like Argentina and Bolivia, where friends of our local church right now preach to the poor the good news of Jesus Christ. It's going to go to places like San Antonio, Texas, thousands of miles away, and thousands of years after this prophecy. We are the nations, and the light has come to us. Jesus' mission, the task of the servant, is to bring all the nations, people from every tribe and tongue, to the throne room of the Father, where we will gather together on the last day and sing aloud, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Can we wrap up by letting me personalize this for you? Jesus speaks to you here this morning, friends, through these verses, by his spirit. Jesus is the servant son 
who has come into this world to bring restoration. He's come to bring restoration to your life. He's come to bring forgiveness of your sins. He's come to make right what is wrong with you. He's come to heal what is broken, to renew what is tarnished. Where do you need restoration? Think with me. Where do you need restoration? I mentioned Andrew Peterson a few weeks ago in his books, The Wingfeather Saga. Today I want to read you a couple of lines from one of his songs. This is a song called Don't You Want to Think Someone, and he opens the song by, I think, summarizing what we all sometimes feel. Listen to what he writes. Can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here, waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. That song summarizes what we all know deep down. There's so much wrong. So much wrong with this world. So much wrong with each one of our lives. And deep down, we all long for restoration. We all long for renewal. We all long for things to be made right, for the healing of our hearts and our homes, don't we? Some of you are here today. Some of you here today are like Israel. You're like Israel so many centuries ago. Some of you have fallen away from God. You've ignored him. You've cheated on him. You've not loved or worshipped him even though he's pursued you and taught you and led you. Some of you grew up in and around the church. Your parents taught you the scriptures. They prayed for you and probably still pray for you, and yet you feel far from the Lord. In fact, you've said to yourself time and again, I need to move on and establish my own way and do my own thing. And because of this, you feel exiled. You might not use that word, But we all feel that way. You feel distant. You feel far from God. Maybe you've had, in your past, really powerful spiritual moments where God's presence felt vivid, but those are in the past. And you're living life right now as if the reality of God is a distant past, a a, a faraway fairy tale. And today, you need to be brought back home. Today, you need to hear that exile is not the last word. You need to hear God speaking to you again, what he says later in Isaiah 49. I will not ever forget you. I've engraven your name on the palm of my hand. You need to hear again the deep love of Jesus Christ for you, not when you're near him, but especially when you're far from him. You need to listen to his voice and come back home. He invites you back. Advent is a time for this, for you to awaken again to God's deep heart of love for you. Others of you are here today, not feeling that much like Israel, but feeling maybe like the nations. (laughs) Like the nations so many centuries ago. Some of you I know because I get to be your pastor. I have that privilege. Your story is that for many years you led a life far from God, and for some of you that might be what you're doing right now. You've tried on for size, all kinds of beliefs and values and religions and philosophies. You've sought happiness and meaning through different experiences and different relationships, but you don't feel like you've found it. 
Today, God invites you into the light of his salvation. He invites you to hear the story of Advent, that this world is wounded, that we are all shattered because we've lost our connection to our maker and king. But he has come. He's come to restore. He's come to renew. He has acted decisively in Jesus for us. Jesus has died for sin to be canceled. Jesus has come back to life for us to have freedom and purpose. Today, Jesus Christ, the risen king, speaks to you and summons you through repentance and faith into restoration, into his kingdom. Will you listen? He's the redeemer. He's faithful. He's chosen for you to be in this place today, hearing his words. Listen. Advent always reminds me of C.S. Lewis. That's kind of weird, but it does. Most things remind me of C.S. Lewis, Uh, specifically um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the fourth book of the Chronicles of Narnia. And that book makes me think of Advent because at the beginning of that book, the children are back in the real world. And, uh, They're back in the real world and they feel restless because they've lived long and illustrious and royal lifetimes upon lifetimes in Narnia as kings and queens of that realm. But now they're back home and and in their earthly place and, and they can't be satisfied with the real world any longer. They're dying to get back to Narnia. That that's the posture that Advent creates for us. We're all waiting to to go back to Narnia, to go back home, to go back to God, back to God's kingdom. And, And Jesus has come to give us access to just that, to bring us back to God, to to bring us restoration, to return us to him. That's why the servant came. He invites you home. Come, let's pray.